Hi, I'm Mark Lynch of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Uh, welcome back to the POMEPS podcast, our series of conversations with leading scholars in the field. Uh, with me today is Charlie Kurzman of the Sociology Department at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Uh, Charlie, welcome to the program. Thank you. So let's talk about uh, your research on uh, the Iranian Revolution and, and more generally on how uh, uh, these large-scale social mobilizations get started. Um, so t- tell me about your research. Yeah, well, my, my dissertation research was on, uh, on the Iranian Revolution, and, and what was fascinating to me is to talk to people who participated in this mass mobilization against the Shah, against this monarchy that had been in place for decades, uh, was supported by all the major world powers of the day. This is in the late 1970s. Uh, and how they were uh, totally shocked at the success that they had in gathering huge numbers of people in the streets for demonstrations, uh, mobilizing large-scale strikes and sit-ins, and then ultimately overthrowing this entrenched leader uh, relatively peacefully. It was a total surprise to them. That element of surprise, uh, even experts uh, were shocked as well. So there's a report from the CIA, 100 days before the Shah is forced out that says, we expect there'll be some reforms, but the Shah will weather these protests like he's done before. Nobody expected this large-scale revolution. I, I think we, in, in the social sciences, we tend to make things seem more expected after the fact, retroactively. Uh, but there's some value in recapturing that sense of surprise, uh, that sense of uh, that everything's up in the air. We don't know where things are headed, which is really so much of the emotional importance of these moments for the people who are experiencing them. And that's the part of, of, of your book and uh, some articles you've written that I just found really compelling, which is that it's really easy to beat us, beat ourselves up, political scientists, you know, the CIA, whoever, and say, how could you possibly have not seen this coming? But your point is that the, the participants themselves didn't see it coming. Absolutely. Even Khomeini, who, who you know, was the, the leader of this revolutionary movement, he didn't see it coming either. He, was, he thought this was going to take a long time, years, uh, to come to fruition. Uh, and, and even then, he wasn't entirely optimistic. That it's, I think that's a, a common uh, recurrent thread in, in revolutionary movements, is that nobody really knows when the moment will come. And frankly, most revolutionary mobilizations fail. Uh, and disappear from from you know the memory of all but specialists and people who who lived through them. Uh, that you know you can make these predictions about what's coming, or, and also as social scientists we can say where structurally the which regimes seem to be most vulnerable. But frankly, we're we're usually wrong. But you know. We lived through this quite recently, like in, in Egypt and, and with the, the early Arab uprisings, and it was very similar to what you described. Many of the Egyptian activists uh, in the days leading up to January 25th, they didn't expect this to succeed. They, they were as, as uh, uncertain as the rest of us. But it, it kind of raises this question of like point prediction versus more general prediction, right? So nobody expected January 25th, 2011, but the, the literature was full for years of arguments offering more structural cases that Egypt is unstable, that's unsustainable, it's heading towards a crisis. And so, you know, at one level, yeah, radically unpredictable. At another level, seemingly predictable. 
Well, you could say that, uh, that certainly. I mean, uh, Mubarak, uh, it was aging. Uh, there was going to have to be some sort of transition. Uh, no regime lasts forever. Uh, but that, that, that uh, uh, discourse of crisis has been there for decades, really far longer, I mean, to the point where it doesn't really get credit for having predicted uh, the eventual collapse. Uh, and also, I think we, we talk about crisis in the context of many, many countries that had problems, structural problems, equal to or even greater than the Egyptian state has had, and yet managed to survive that moment of, of uh, the wave of uprisings in early uh, 2011. But the, at the same time, the, you know, the, 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 uh, uh, we, we have a professional incentive to come up with explanations for how these things happen. Uh, and I, we tend to, I think, fold under the rug then the, the, the sense of surprise that was so important at the time. Uh, and it was such a huge part of the experience of the people, the actors involved. Well, what's interesting is you mentioned the failed mobilizations. And in a sense, if you were deeply, you know, if, if you were very closely following or deeply embedded in, say, Egyptian protest politics, all of the lessons tell you that you're going to fail because you've been mobilizing for the last five or six years and failing to generate large-scale change. And so, you know, it's, on the one hand, the structural models don't predict it, in, not in this, in this specific way, but also even like recent experience or, you know, accurately learning the lessons of previous attempts also doesn't predict it. Yeah, and one of the things, the difficulties with rational choice theory and approaches like that is this supposed learning uh, from past experience People don't learn, or at least what they learn is, is kind of uh, unpredictable in itself. Uh, you know, the people may feel it's incredibly important for them to go out and protest, even if it's only symbolic, even if there's just a few dozen friends out there, uh, you know, holding up signs and risking getting arrested and so on. Uh, I don't think they would be saying, um, uh, you know, I think I'm going to make a revolution this time, when the last hundred times I came out here I didn't and I failed. Uh, I think what they're saying is, this is important to me. Uh, and then when suddenly another hundred people join, and then another hundred, and then thousands, uh, and they feel like, oh, yes, you know, this time we did it. We did it. Uh, and there's evidence in, in, from, from Egypt of people, you know, absolutely flabbergasted that all of a sudden, they, the, this relatively small numbers of people look around and behind them are tens of thousands. Uh, and the uh, Egyptian uh, intelligence uh, services and uh, the Western intelligence services, nobody thought that was going to happen. Nobody saw it coming. So what's interesting is that I think there is this small but growing body of literature out there, people like Wendy Perlman, who, uh, for example, uh, who really are focusing on that emotional moment in that you know, you get out on the streets and maybe it's for expressive reasons, but then there's that moment when suddenly this, you know, fatalism turns to hope. Absolutely. It's uh, empowering, it's a, but it's also a very dangerous thing. Well, it's, it, it, let's put it in the terms of the people who live through it. This is a memorable, memorable moment. This is something they're going to tell their grandchildren about. It's something they're going to remember their entire lives and tell stories about forever. Uh, this is a, the high point of, of somebody's life, is to participate in, in, a, in a revolution like that with all of the hopes and the imagination of what, what could come, even if ultimately it all crumbles and fails. It's still an incredibly vivid uh, moment in, in people's lives. And 
sometimes those stories will, after the fact, then uh, you know, turn mm -hmm. the, the, the tale in a way that reduces their culpability or that uh, anticipates what would, they couldn't have known at the time but will later happen uh, to their revolution that will get stolen or hijacked or these other stories. And I think we need to be careful when we interview people uh, as, as social scientists uh, not to assume that the story they're telling us after the fact is what exactly corresponds to what they were feeling then. So the study of emotions is very difficult because by definition uh, they don't last your, your, your whole lifetime uh, and yet you're, you're, you can't really access them except by asking people questions after the fact. You can look at what they're saying at the time. So, so for example, you know, with all the social media that's out there now, one of the things that I've done at certain points is to be able to go and you can actually track in, in the equivalent of real time you know, messages, that sentiments expressed that are hopeful versus those that are fearful, you know, pragmatism versus I don't care. Right? We, we were never able to do that before. But um, but it's still it's a, it's not a. It's but even a, that is, has its challenges too. So uh, with uh, this massive text analysis, and I agree, it's an unbelievable, unprecedented amount of information of, of ordinary people's feelings and expressions. Uh, we now have access to uh, never before in history have social scientists or the world in general had access to this much, uh, looking inside other people's uh, heads. But you can often get it wrong, because if you do it on a large scale, we're not so good yet at detecting sarcasm, for example, uh, negative statements, uh, you know, I'm not hopeful, I am hopeful, right. uh, various ways of expressing uh, the opposite. Uh, looking just for words is, it can be misleading sometimes. And we're not so good yet at doing it in Arabic and in other, and it's when people switch back and forth to different scripts. Mm -hmm. I think these are the research issues, perhaps, of the new generation of scholars who are going to be addressing these uh, yeah, and, and some, getting at these classic issues. There's some great young sessions. scholars yes, out there doing, doing this kind of stuff. I'm so jealous of the tools that they can bring to bear on so. these things. I think we're all learning from them. So when you were going back and doing this research on Iran, there's like two different levels that, that this is working on. One is actually explaining the Iranian revolution, right? This is actually a causal analytical account. And the other is like a broader methodological and almost philosophical point about the nature of intentions, uh, the, the importance of uncertainty. And we've talked a bit about the first, but not really about the second. And so, you know, once you're aware of this, how does it change the way you do social analysis? So I call it anti-explanation, that some things just can't be predicted, even retroactively. Uh, they, they, they cannot be easily tamed in our causal explanatory models. Uh, it's those moments when the institutions and the routines break down, and people are forming something new. Something new is emerging. Now, not totally new, but new enough that it doesn't fit our old models. Uh, and so my sort of philosophical takeaway is that we should be open to these breaks from routine and treat them with the respect that these are really new, new phenomena, new animals, uh, and not try to uh, shove them into the old categories and the old causal models. When you think about it that way, though, you're looking at these moments of exception. You're looking at these disjunctural moments. But then at some point, things go back 
to the way they were, or they go back to something like the way they were, normal or life. Or something new. I mean, or new something routines, new. Right? But but normal life re returns, sure. uh, routines return. Mm -hmm. Is that is that? Do you think that's really what you're saying? Is that there's kind of a normal mode of politics, which is maybe predictable, but then you have these exceptional moments where the rules are suspended. Is that the type of causal story you yes, want to tell? Except that I think it is much more. Uh, it's not an either or. That there are. It can be partially breaks from routine and other routines maintain. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not just an either or. But yes, that there are moments where the old bets are off, the old deals have fallen through, nobody really knows what's going to come next. That is such an exciting moment. Those are the moments where we, uh, that we come to label as revolutions mm -hmm. or as failed revolutions because you know, regimes and systems can survive that uncertainty and restitch themselves back together. So this is one of the things which, uh, you know, when I look at the where the Arab uprisings have brought us, is that that radical uncertainty, it might produce hope, but it also can produce fear and despair. And so this is one of the, one of the really negative outcomes of the way so many of these transitions have failed or they've turned into wars, civil wars, proxy wars. Um, you know, so you see people coming out in the streets and maybe in January 2011, that tells you at last a chance to be free. And maybe today it tells you, oh God, it's gonna end up like Syria. Um, and is there any way to know in advance which of those emotions are more likely to carry the day? No, I don't think that the, the emotions cause these things, and I don't think that we, we, we could know that. Uh, I think those are precisely, though, the big questions that everybody who's in those crowds or watching the crowds or hears about the crowds and is considering going, they want to know that too. So we are all making social scientific type predictions when we're acting and living through these moments. Everybody's a social scientist. Uh, they're asking each other, they're sampling widely from outside their normal networks to try to figure out what people are going to be doing, which way things are headed. Uh, they're constantly trying to uh, uh, figure out what these new institutions are that are emerging or whether the old ones are going to survive. Uh, and yeah, the sense of disillusionment when things don't turn out well, when they, the hopes and dreams have, have come crumbling down and the new institutions turn out to be not what you imagined at all that they ought to be. We saw this in Iran, where a huge portion of the population that was so active in bringing down the Shah then feels that they, they, their revolution was hijacked and that the, this new Islamic Republic doesn't represent what they meant at all. Uh, we see it again after uh, the, the uprisings of the Arab Spring. Huge portions of the population saying, no, no, this, this isn't what we wanted. Uh, and some of them go out in the streets again and again and again to try to get what they wanted. What about, uh, say, Iran in 2009? Um, you know, how, how did you read that moment? Yeah, so here there's a, a contested presidential election, one in a series of contested presidential elections that Iran has had, even under its, its, its uh, authoritarian uh, constitution in the Islamic Republic. Uh, and the results are contested. Those people don't accept that the, the, the uh, incumbent has won, Ahmadinejad. Again, you know, without a whole lot of advance uh, notice, without a whole lot of advance planning, large crowds, first in the tens of thousands, then in the hundreds of thousands, go out into the streets. It looks like uh, this regime may be done for. I mean, massive protests, really the largest since the revolution of 78, 79. And yet, slowly, uh, and with more sophistication than the Shah's regime ever had, uh, the Islamic Republic manages to corral those demonstrations, 
uh, with some loss of life, but not a massive loss of life. They managed to police those demonstrations, getting them smaller and smaller, peeling off the activists and arresting them. So when you were following the, that, those protests in real time, were you seeing the same types of dynamics that your historical research on 78, 79? Very much so. And not only, I wasn't the only one to see that. The people who were at that point blogging uh, largely in Iran about these uh, events uh, were also making these analogies. This is like 1979. This is like the, the overthrow of the Shah. And other people saying, no, it's not because of X, Y, and Z, debating the analogy. Uh, and I think that, and yet nobody knew what was going to be coming next. And that's precisely the, 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 my, my overall point, is that when you're in these moments, uh, you don't know how it's going to turn out. I, I, I like that way, the, the way of framing it. Uh, our colleague, Lisa Anderson, who used to be the president at AUC, uh, she wrote an, an article looking back at the Egyptian revolution, and one of the things that she saw as the major change was the way that all the citizens around her were suddenly deeply invested in politics. And she called it, suddenly Egypt is a nation of political scientists. Everybody you meet, everybody you talk to, they're talking about electoral systems and protest mobilization. And so uh, I'm not sure that a nation of political scientists or sociologists is a good thing. But um, at any rate, uh, Charlie Kurzman, thank you for joining us on the Pull Maps podcast. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Mark. 